0: We've been talking about uh, how your mind works and that your mind works in patterns of thoughts. And I want to get into a new subject tonight, but as I was praying up here uh, before the service began, I just felt a need to just go back and read something to you. And then I want to remind you of something we talked about last week. And the reason is because after teaching this last week, I mean, I'm aware of it, I've had at least three or four instances in counseling somebody or talking to somebody, and one of those persons I had to counsel was me and apply what I taught you last week to myself. But it brought home to me how vividly this principle is true and how important it is for us to master, to understand it and eventually master it. Second Corinthians chapter 10 or the scripture we've been looking at, Paul talks about this process. He says in verse 3, "...for we do not walk in the flesh," But we do not, we don't, although we walk in the flesh, we live in this body, we don't war according to the flesh. I love what Mari, what Marilyn Neubauer taught on Saturday morning, and she did it one last year on a Wednesday night, and she had three cardboard figures, and one was, two of them were joined together. One was your spirit, one was your soul, and then the third one was your body and she had them lined up here and I don't remember who it was I remember Gary Johnson was one of them and I think he was the spirit and what she showed is that who you are is a spirit that's the real you that's the part of you that's going to heaven you have a soul we talked about the three parts of you that's your personality your mind, your will, and your emotions and that's joined forever to your your spirit and those two live in your body but your body is just your house in this earth it's not your ultimate home and the Bible is very clear on that. In fact, in Hebrews 11, it talks a lot about that, that realizing this is like a tent. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, it refers to your body as a tent. Well, think about what a tent is. A tent is a temporary dwelling place. It doesn't have a foundation. It's just a place to go camping in. Well, you're here camping for 30, 60, 80, whatever years, but it, and you, you're sleeping in this tent because that's what you need to be here, but this is just your house. And so she taught her from the perspective is that something goes wrong with it. Something went wrong with your house, not you. Just as she said, if I get termites in my house, I don't have termites. My house has termites. So if your body's sick tonight, you're not sick. Your house has got an ailment in it. But it's important to realize that that's not who you are. And so when Paul says, although we walk in the flesh, he's talking about this body, this house that he lived in. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God or through God for the pulling down of strongholds. We talked about strongholds, casting down arguments or imaginations. We talked about those and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We talked about this, but we really didn't. We focused on this from a point of view. But I want to start here, the end of verse five, bringing every other thought into captivity. That's not what it says. Bringing every Thought into captivity remember we talked about the UPS man ringing the doorbell and you open the door and he hands you the package you sign for it and then you figure out what it is that's what your thought life is like a thought comes to you It could have come from Satan, it could have come from the Holy Spirit, it could have come from you, it could have come from somebody else, it can come from any one of those sources and what we do is we sign for it, we accept it into our mind, we adopt it in our mind and then later find out, if we even ask the question, where did it come from? Because where it comes from determines what it is intended to do, because every thought that comes to you has some purpose in mind. And here we see Paul says, we are to take every thought captive. Every thought captive, and bring it into obedience to Christ. And we'll talk about that as we go on in this process. And then we talked about We talked about this. Remember this? The square? <clears throat> we talked about your mind wants to take thoughts and piece them together and formed images. And, and so you first look at that, and it was good because I talked to several people, and the first thing they saw was a square because there are four corners. But I, I'm not sure I can do it with this device because I got my phone here. Let's see if I can. There we go. Okay. And we did this. It's hard to do it on this little screen. Okay. <laughs> I was never a very good artist, it's abstract art. <laughs> very abstract. And that's what our mind tends to see. But in reality, if you fo- so we see a square. But if you follow the numbers, what you get is a Z. But our mind, the moment it gets thoughts, tries to piece them together and get some meaning out of them. And that meaning then forms an image, and that image is what we react to. And if it's there long enough, it becomes a stronghold. So when you find yourself reacting to something, you need to learn to go back and go back over the numbers and find out what numbers have I collected together. What thoughts have my mind pieced together in order to form a meaning? And then find out if those are the truth, if you really are connecting together in the right way. And we talked about that last week, so we're going to move on now. And we're going to look at another issue right now. We're now going to talk about in order to do this, in order to 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 renew your mind we talked about what your mind how your mind works we ended last time talking about the process that it's a lifelong process it's something you're learning how to do so what we're learning in this course is the basics but in some basic skills and then I'm going to give you in a few weeks some training exercises very simple training exercises that if you will do them they will work and develop the discipline we don't like that word but that's what it takes and develop the discipline by which you will then be able to do what seems impossible to you to do Right now, in order to under, to do that, there's certain basic principles, and I call them key concepts that it, that will help you understand this process and help you to be victorious over it. Because there, these are areas where we often misunderstand some things. So we're going to begin to talk about that. Uh oh, lost connection. We will get it back again. Okay. So we're going to talk about certain keys. Let's get rid of that one. Ah, there we go. Keys to renewing the mind are principles these basically are. You don't have to master one of these before you go on to the next one. These are not, although the first one is kind of in order, but but you need to understand all of these. And we're going to go through them. We may well not finish them tonight because I want to spend some time on one of them in particular. But these are all basic principles that, that if you learn these things, they will help you with this process of renewing your mind and the first one, this is a foundational one, you have to decide that the Word of God is the authority in your life. And the reason for that is we're going to use the Word of God to renew your mind. I explained to you last week, the process is this, and this is why we spend so much time on understanding how your mind works. Remember, the things that are controlling you are strongholds in your mind. A stronghold is an image that has been in your mind and you've operated on it so long that it's like a permanent image that's ingrained in there. But that's made up of an image. The image is made up of a series of dots, of thoughts that your mind has pieced together and they formed a picture. I I couldn't do it. Maybe the next time I do this I'll be able to do it up there. But what I used to do in class is take a newspaper picture and go and, and pass it around with a magnifying glass and when you look at a newspaper picture you can see that it's a series of little dots in various degrees of gray or color if it's a color picture. That's what an image in your mind is made up of. A series of thoughts your mind has put together with some meaning to form an image. And what I explained to you at the end last time is the way you, you cannot just go erase that old stronghold. There's two things you have to do to get rid of it. One is stop feeding it. The more you think about those thoughts, the more you look at that image, the more you act on that image, the more you embed that stronghold in your mind. So if you stop thinking about it, it will eventually fade away. James chapter 1 talks about, uh, uh, talks about being a doer of the word and it says if you're a hearer only and not a doer, you're like a man that looks at his face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. So if you stop looking at that image, eventually it will begin to fade in its power over you. That's the first thing, you stop feeding it. But the second thing is we replace the old image with a new image. But you just can't go to the image bank and withdraw an image. You can't go to the bookstore and just buy a new image to stick in that slot on the side of your head. It would be wonderful if we could do that, but that's not the way we're made. But you can go to the bookstore and get a book that gives you a bunch of new dots, a bunch of new thoughts, And so the way you replace, the way you build a positive stronghold is you form a positive image. And the way you form a positive image is by intentionally putting in positive thoughts that are ordained by God. And we ended by saying that the thoughts we're going to learn to put in are out of the Word of God. Therefore, they're divinely ordained by God to, to form images in your mind and in your brain. And they're more powerful because they're the truth, first of all, and they're God's truth. I love when Marilyn Newbar was teaching. She talked about the difference on Saturday morning between a fact and truth. A fact is something that exists, but a truth is what God says about it. You understand the difference? So, and they may not agree... There may be a fact that there's a tumor in your body. But when the Bible says that Jesus bore that for you and carried it so you don't have to carry it. When the Bible says in, in Galatians chapter 3 that he, he, he became the curse for you so that you can be redeemed from that curse. Therefore, that's a, high, that's a truth that doesn't line up with a fact. And we've got to choose which report we believe. In fact, that, that's how Isaiah 53 starts. Whose report will you believe? So there are two reports. They, one may be a fact and the other may be a truth. A truth as a higher authority than a fact. Because a fact can be changed, but the truth never changes. The truth abides forever. Facts can change. I'll give you an example. Last year I was 69. That was a fact. Uh, It's not true anymore. I'm now 70. So facts can change. Truth can't ever change. Amen. Amen? Amen? All right. Now, the reason that's important here is because we're going to use the Word of God to establish new images and new strongholds. And the power of that Word... To replace the old ones is the direct apportion to the authority that word has to you. So if you just take God's word into that as one element of what you consider to be true in your mind, then that's all the meaning it's going to have to you. So when God's word says one thing, when God's word says that you're forgiven because you've come to Christ. When God's Word says that in Christ you've been made holy and without blame, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing just as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world so that if you're in Christ, this is what He chose to do for you, that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So in God's eyes, when you came to Christ, and you were joined to Him, you now took on His righteousness. You now took on His holiness. You now took on His freedom from blame and shame. That's what God's Word says about you. But if God's word only means to you, it's just one of a number of inputs in your life, it's one of a number of things you consider when you decide who you are, then that word is going to have very little power to overcome the strongholds that were put in you as a child. They have a greater authority in your mind because they got there first. They have to be removed, so it takes something that has a greater place in your heart, a greater place in your life than the things that were put in you from a childhood. That's why they say, from what I understand, I don't know who the they is, but they say it. It's child psychologists and people say the first five years are so critical in a child's life. In fact, even before that, the first one or two years, because their whole image of themselves and their image of life around them is formed by how they were treated as a child. And they've done studies of these children that were raised in Romania in these orphanages that were just never touched. They were in a crib. They got a bottle. Somebody changed their diapers. They gave a bottle. Somebody changed their diapers. They were given a bottle. Somebody changed their diapers. But nobody touched them. Nobody held them. And they grow up with an entirely different image of what they were like, what the world was like, than children that have grown up and been nurtured and held. Why do you think God designed the mother's body so that in order to nurse that child, that child would be held in her arms and would look at her and she'd look at that child? Do you think that's just a coincidence? God designed that that because He knew what that child needed to have built into those early periods. Why? Because it's forming images and strongholds of what I'm like, what this world is like around me, whether I'm safe, whether I'm secure, or whether i got to hold on to myself for the rest of my life and make my own way. It's amazing when you study the lives of criminals, you study the lives of some of these philosophers and founders of religion and some of the worldview, even today, some of the leading atheists, in many cases, and I haven't studied them all, but in many cases, The ones I've looked into, their childhood was a mess. There was no father present. Their parents were divorced at an early age. So their worldview started out that there's no God that cares. And so they start with this image in there. And, of course, it gets reinforced as you grow up and go to school. And now in college, that just very much reinforced. And so the point is, if the Word of God is just one of several alternatives that you consider, it's, it, it, it's, it's starting out behind because you've already got images in there that were put in there by greater authorities in your perspective, whether you were conscious of it or not. Everybody follow me so far? Okay. Let's go quickly to uh, this statement. Excuse me. The Word of God only has power in your life to the extent that you give it authority I'm going to say that slowly. The Word of God only has power in your life to the extent that that Word has authority in your life. You've heard me say this before. But Jesus equated, as two sides of the same coin, faith and authority. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5, is the story of the centurion. A Roman soldier, not a Jew, not a not a, a, a Pharisee, not one of the scribes, a Roman officer, a Gentile officer. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, "My servants lying home, suffering greatly." And Jesus's first response: We don't want to get off on this, but this is insight into his heart. I'll come in healing. He wasn't even asked yet. He heard the need. I'll come. I'll come in healing. He still comes today. By the way. Jesus makes house calls. This house. (laughs) I'll come and heal him. And the centurion says, no, 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 no. That's not what he's going to ask you. you. You don't need to come. In fact, in some of the versions, he says, I'm not worthy for you to come. And you don't need to. Because I recognize that you're somebody under authority, and that's where your authority comes from. Because I'm also somebody under authority, which is where my authority comes from. And Jesus stopped everybody and said, I haven't seen such great faith in all of Israel. And the reason faith and authority are are opposite sides of the same coin is what is faith really? Faith is really in confidence that God will do and can do what He said He'll do. It's just faith that God's Word has the authority to carry it out. That's why this, the, the, the disciples were so shocked when he was asleep on the back of the boat in the terrible storm and they wake him up and he goes to the bow of the boat, I suspect almost annoyed. He doesn't say that. But he says, Peace, be still. He doesn't yell and scream. He says, Peace, be still. And he goes back and he says to them, How come you didn't do it? No, how come you woke me up? And they're looking at each other and they said, They're astounded that God would give such authority to men you understand that the only thing God ever created that does not instantly obey His Word is us? The storms instantly obeyed His Word. We heard Sunday morning that the fish that Jonah was swallowed by instantly obeyed His Word. Nature obeyed His Word. The stars still obey His Word. Everything obeys His Word except the one creature He gave us independent will to. But that means when we put ourselves in line with His Word, then that same authority will work in us and through us. So the Word of God can only work in my life to the degree that it has authority in my life. Otherwise, it's just another opinion. And since it doesn't line up with the way the world thinks, then it most likely is going to be somewhere down in the light. See, this is what we do we come to church and we take our real head off and put it in the cubby out there for your heads. And we pick up our church head and we stick it on and we come in here because it smiles and it says praise the Lord, I'm blessed. And it's just, oh, whenever God's word says, it's the truth, amen, God bless you, pastor, that's right, oh, amen. And we in here, we all agree on it. We walk out there, we take our church heads off We stick them back in the cubby. We pick up our real head, stick them back on and we go out with, the smile was on the church head by the way. And we go back out with that sour look on our face and speaking the way we did in the world because we left all that in here because we live in two different worlds. There's our church world and then there's the real world out there. The problem is we don't take this head off and leave it here. This head goes out there but it spends more time out there than it does in here it spends more time out there being bombarded with all kinds of facts that don't line up with this truth and if that word this truth does not have authority in my life it doesn't stand much of a chance it's thrown into the great washing machine mix of ideas floating around in our heads and that various ones sort out and here's the problem we keep going through this. It's as she said, uh, one of the services where she talked about somebody kept coming up in the healing line when they really weren't expecting to get healed. And so don't you understand what that does? That's not just, that's not just a meaningless exercise. You're lowering your faith and everybody else's expectation. Because when we keep coming in here getting excited about something and go out there and don't really expect it to happen, we're, what we do is we lower our confidence in God and in His Word. And then an emergency comes, and we don't know why. We speak the word. It doesn't work. The name of Jesus doesn't work. But you said, Pastor. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. But then we begin to question whether this really works. And so most of us wouldn't just throw it out. The young people do. They're looking for something that's authentic. They want to see something that's real and authentic. And that's good news, because there's nothing more real and more authentic than God's word. But we have to be a people that are committed to it. That means we're under its authority. So, the Word of God only has authority in your life to change your life to the extent, only has power in your life to change your life to the extent that it has authority. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. And I'll show you, Jesus said this, not just me. 7. That comes after 6, John. There we go. Okay. Verse 24. Jesus has just taught a whole series of principles about how we're to live our life and the kingdom of God and what's it like. Verse 24. Therefore, that means... And you've taught me teach this before. When you see a therefore, that's a bridge to what he just said. So what he's about to say is, is a consequence or a result of what he just said or it's an important provision. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them... I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Verse 26, Everyone who hears these sayings of mine jumps and shouts and says, Praise the Lord. I added that in. And does not do them, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. Notice the difference between the two results. They both heard the same word. They both had the same building materials. The difference was what they built their house on. And the difference, Jesus said, is between the one who hears it And does what he hears. In other words, that word has authority in his life. It's not just a nice idea. It's not just a nice sentiment. But when I hear it, I'm going to do it. And because I heard it and it's God's word, therefore I will obey it because it's what God is saying to me to do. And he says, if that's who you are, if that's how you're conducting yourself, then whatever comes against you won't be able to knock you down because you're standing on the authority of God's word and God's word will hold you up. Remember, it held Peter up out on the water in a storm. So God's word can hold you up in anything, but only if you're standing on it. Only if you're trusting in it enough to not just say it, but to put your confidence in it to step out on it. So when God's Word talks about, that's what happened to me when I was first, we were first saved. I'd never heard of tithing. They, were, they didn't teach tithing in the church we belonged to. And I found out about tithing and when I found out what tithing meant, I almost died. One-tenth? Because I got paid once a month. And I was working in a big law firm making a good salary and my, my mind immediately calculated what one-tenth of that was and I gulped that's probably more than I'd given in several ye- number of years and I'm trembling inside I remember and I got this battle going on so what am I going to do and then I had to settle this once and for all if God's word says that then that's what I'm going to do now I'll never forget writing that first tie check my hand trembled I, You know, I thought I was going to die I really did I mean, serious. I was. What's going to happen? And of course, my mind's going crazy. You're, 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 you're you know, you're nuts. You're going to go broke. Gonna, I haven't gone broke. We haven't gone broke. In fact, I've watched God do an amazing financial miracles in our life because we stood on the word of God. And but my point here is this: I, we had a choice to make. This is what we believe God's word says, and we're going to do this. It's going to even have authority over us now or we're going to struggle all our lives. And we made the right choice and have continued to make the right choice. Okay, let's go also to John chapter 13. This is the other end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus has just gone through this amazing story where he's washed their feet. They've just celebrated the last, the Lord's, the last supper together, uh, their last supper together. And, and the Lord then gets up and goes around to wash their feet. And, of course, I've told you this a number of times. The scene, of course, is that typically in somebody's house, if you came in because you were wearing sandals and the roads were dirty, there was a a slave assigned the job of taking your sandals off and washing your feet. And it was such a routine, lowly, menial thing done by the lowest-ranking slave that in most cases probably you didn't even notice it was being done. But, of course, this is a rented room. There's no slave assigned to this room. Instead, the landlord has left a pitcher a bowl and a towel. And so the, the, the utensils are there to do this, but there's no servant there. And Jesus gets up at the end of the supper and goes and takes his outer garment off, takes the towel, and he proceeds to go around and wash all their feet. He does the role of a menial, lowly servant. And then he finishes by saying, and this is what we're going to pick up in John chapter 13 in verse 14. Verse 13, he says, If I then, if you call me Lord and teacher, you say, Well, for so I am. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to also wash one another's. And he's not saying we literally have to do that, but he said you ought to serve serve one another as a servant. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent me greater than, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent me. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, if they have authority over you enough so that you will act on what you have heard. Without this step, what's going to happen? And that step is that deciding that the Word is the authority in your life, not just a authority, it's the authority, the ultimate authority in your life. Without that, the word is not the foundation on which you stand. It's just a factor. Without this step, your mind will question and you'll get confused. This this decision settles the question of what you're going to do. And finally, it is a decision, not an emotion. One of the things that we've kind of... Lapsed into for years now, it's not just in the last few years, and I don't mean we, Faith Christian Center, I mean the church, Christians. We've lapsed into this, this, this illusion that, that emotions are what control us, our emotions are what determine what the truth is. But do you ever notice how much your emotions change in a day? I mean, they're fickle, emotions are very fickle. We talked about this earlier. Because I taught you the principle that emotions follow thoughts. So if you want to change your emotions, you change your thoughts. And the other way they're tied together is your emotions gives you some clue of what you've been thinking about. So if you're depressed and discouraged and the world looks dark and drab to you and things are terrible, you need to go back and check how you've been connecting dots together. And then line that picture you get up with the picture that this Word gives us and then you need to make a change and if you'll do that the emotions will change so this decision this is the decision not an emotion that means regardless of how you feel you can decide to put the give the word that authority in your life that it deserves you can decide that which means we're all without excuse all right let's look at the next principle And here's where we're going to spend some time and get some fun. Get control of your mind. You'll never renew it if you can't catch it. You'll never stop the thoughts and replace them with God's thoughts if you can't catch your mind, if you can't get control of your mind. So we're going to learn how to get control of your mind. And I'm going to start with this story that when we were first saved and I began to realize that I had the spiritual responsibility or the responsibility to be spiritual head of my home. And at that point we had two children and, and, and we had this cute little dog, cute little black, um, miniature poodle. And, and we had, you know, my wife had wanted a dog for years. We finally went and picked this dog out and, uh, and, and she, was, she just became a member of our home. She was part of our family. I mean, she was just... And she was really smart, and they are. Poodles are smart. And this was a cute miniature poodle, and she was cuddly and friendly and just wonderful. She you know traveled with us, and, and, and you know when we moved to Oklahoma, she moved with us. We were in a, in a hotel room for 10 days. She was in that hotel room. She was just great. But when we first got her, and I start Well, excuse me, I, I went to the Lord. I said, all right, Lord, I see in your word that I am to be the spiritual head of my home. What does that mean? What do I do? And the Lord spoke to me, and he said, because I'm thinking of getting my wife in control, my kids in control, get everything the way I wanted it to be. And the Lord says, you can't do anything when you have a dog that's out of control. Dog, what's that got to do with it? She's cute. She's fun. But here's what Mandy was like you couldn't let her outside unless she was on a leash because she wouldn't come back. Well, she'd come back when she wanted to. And we lived, in a, we lived right outside of Boston in a pretty dense community and that couldn't be safe. And I certainly couldn't trust Mandy's judgment of when she'd come back and what was safe to get into. So we had to always watch the door when we went out to make sure that she didn't sneak out And obviously she had to go out, but we had to put a leash on her, go walk her, bring her back, and make sure she couldn't go out. So Mandy was restricted, her life was restricted to our house and the leash. And this all came to a head one night. It was, we had friends after we were saved, actually these were people that helped lead us to the Lord. And we just would meet with them once a week, and we'd have dinner, maybe in our house, or go out to eat and come back. And then we'd just sit around and talk about the Word of God and the things of God. And, and you know, we'd pray together and share God, what God was doing. You know, those, those fresh early days, it was so exciting. And while we're sharing, what would happen often is, you know, we'd sit in chairs and in our living room. And especially this, this, ta- this incident happened in the wintertime. And so it was very cold, very cold outside that night. And what we, while we're talking, we had a... remember bean bags that you could sit on? Those old pink and orange bean bags. We had one of those. And Mandy would get up in it and go around like this and then just yeah. settle down, curl up and just go to sleep while we're talking. And this one particular night, and we were, it wasn't uncommon for us to do this, we're talking up till almost midnight. And just, you know, we just, we're so excited, you know. And so now it's time for them to go and as they get, I'm, I'm tired, I've worked all day obviously, and I get up and is and I'm getting up and saying goodbye to them and I go to close the door, and as I go to close the door a black streak slips out. Now Mandy's been sleeping all evening in a warm, toasty, warm house and has just run outside into probably 18 to 20 degree weather. Cold, dark, midnight. Mandy's full of energy. It's time to play. John's not full of energy, John thinks it's time to go to bed, and, and it's cold out there, it's warm in our bed. And I'm, I'm already angry, because the dog's outside. And I've got to show you what this was like. We had three steps to go down, and then a walk, and I went down to another step. It was not a large yard, we were a corner lot. And on the edge of our yard, to the side, to the street, there was a hedge about that high. A thick hedge. And Mandy scoots down the front steps out into the street and turns around and looks at me, and she's ready to play. I'm not ready to play. And, I, you know, you can sense when you're getting tense. She can sense when I'm getting tense. And she knows if I'm getting tense, I'm going to get angry. And I'm smart enough to know I can't get angry at her because then she's not going to come to me. I want her to come to me, jump in my arms, have me love her while I take her inside. She's not about to get in my arms, but she wants to play. So I go after her, slowly. Hi, Mandy. It's time to go to bed. Oh, this, Mandy. And as I go up to her, she scoots around and goes through the hedge, because there was open underneath, big enough for her to get through. And now, excuse my back, now I'm back looking at her, and she's in here, and she's going. So i got to walk around the edge of the hedge to get to where she is, and she watches me, and as soon as I get close enough, she goes through the hedge (laughs) and turns around. This is fun and games for her. She's played hide-and-go-seek with me, and I'm getting angrier and angrier and angrier because I can see this may go on as long as she wants it to. She's in control, not me. And so my voice level is going up. And now I start getting angry enough and loud enough that Anita's looking out the window upstairs, lights are starting to go on, and now I'm embarrassed. So this went on for quite a while. And the more I get angry, the more she has fun. And finally I said, that's it, you can freeze to death out here, I don't care. (laughs) And I go in, and I close the door, and I go up, and I get into bed. I'm huffing mad. And I'm, I kid you not, I said, God, I'd do anything for you to deliver her into my hands right now. <laughs> and you know what happened? She jumped up on my chest. She'd come in the door, and he'd open the door. She came running upstairs and jumped on my chest, and my hands are around her throat. <laughs> I didn't kill her. She looked at me, and now God began to talk to me remember I said you had to get control of the dog first? this is what I meant and so I realized I had to do something so I went and I enrolled Mandy in obedience school and we show up that Saturday morning there must have been 25 dogs in there most of them were this big or bigger Mandy was the smallest dog there by far and almost everyone else and i just almost everyone else in there was a woman a wife with this big dog because the husband had sent her to get the dog trained and so i learned early on that the purpose of this class is not to train mandy the purpose of this class was to train john so that John could train Mandy. That meant I was going to be the key of whether Mandy got trained or not. And this is where most people miss it. They want somebody else to train their dog. And then they're going to they're exercise that authority, but they've never been trained to do it. And I discovered I needed discipline as much as Mandy did. Because this required... Two-hour classes on Saturday mornings for I don't remember how many weeks, but it was more than that. They said this will not work if you don't do this twice a day with her. Twice a day? I'm a busy lawyer, but I had to. If I wanted this result in her, I had to discipline myself to do what they said. Their word had to have authority in my life. Now, there's a purpose, a point for this. So I'm. they teach us how to tell her to heal and the goal is for her to obey my words not the instructions that I give her so that she learns to do what I say and I was diligent to not only go to the classes but every day, twice a day to take her outside and go through these paces and when we came to the end of that six week period because there were two levels of it the dog that I couldn't let out of the house I could let out and the moment I said Mandy come, she would turn around where she was and come. She now had freedom she didn't have before because she was under my authority. It's not true anymore, but the courtroom the courthouses in Massachusetts, the old ones, used to have this saying engraved above them obedience to the law is freedom. I'm sure they don't anymore. I got her she got to the point. We had, a, we had a cat in our neighborhood. Remember Daffy? This was a neighbor's cat, cute fluffy cat, had one green eye and one blue eye. It was Daffy. And Daffy loved to torment Mandy when Mandy was on a leash. And so I got Daffy, Mandy to the point, and I will still can see it in our side yard, where Mandy's out with me and Daffy shows. Oh, By the way, Mandy got to the point where I would put her food down and she'd sit there and look at me And if I said, go ahead, then she would eat. So I've got Mandy outside, and I said, Mandy, sit, and she sat, just like this. Daffy comes up. The cat that had tormented her comes up and starts walking around her. Walking back and forth in front, tormenting the cat. And Mandy's looking at me like this. (laughs) (laughs) Can I go? Can I go? She wouldn't move unless I released her, and I won't tell you what I did. (laughs) Here's the point. There was a dog absolutely out of control, and by applying principles, she got under control, and that was the beginning of establishing order in our house, and by order, I don't mean I order our kids to sit, but it it began to create a foundation of order in our house. In the process of going through these, this course, I learned something. Because my father-in-law, once his two daughters got married, replaced them with a poodle, a full-size poodle. Well, I said that because this poodle became their child, his child. He fed it, whatever. The, I mean, this dog was totally Spoiled. Could do whatever he wanted to do, get away with whatever he wanted. And, 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 and so I'm in this class, and this dog probably 9, nine, ten years old by this point, my father in law's dog. And I, so I asked the guy that's training him, I said, Well, what about my father in law's dog? Now, he lived in Ohio, so they couldn't take them, but can, can that dog be trained? He said, Any dog can be trained. No matter how old they are or how out of control they are, it just takes longer and it takes more diligence. And I say that because any mind can be trained. No matter how old it is, no matter how long it's been out of control. But it requires diligence, which requires determination. So you can, you, you, the next thing is to get control of your mind. There's some sub-principles under this. We won't finish this point even tonight, because this is the most important one we're going to talk about, of these principles principles these keys you can get control of it no matter how far out of control it is nor how how long it has been out of control because the word of god is anointed to do it you have been put back in the same order within you that adam was originally we talked about that in the beginning remember we talked about the three parts of you that Adam was created his spirit was in charge his soul was there to help his spirit carry out the responsibility and his body was there to, to, as the facility for doing it and when Satan came in this got out of order because now the mind got in control and the flesh through the mind began to control and that's where we were when we came to Christ when you came to Christ God put you back in the right order now we have to learn how to renew our mind to carry out that but inside your spirit has dominion that's why Romans chapter 6 says, sin does not have to have dominion over you any longer because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Sin does not have to be your dominion, neither does an out-of-control mind because the, the, the internal structure has been reorganized. Now it's a matter of, first of all, knowing you can, believing you can, and then disciplining yourself to do it. And we'll talk about that as we go. And this is the next principle, and we'll have to stop here. This is still under get control of your mind. It's a discipline. Oh, we don't like that word. But, but why don't we like that word? Because there are benefits to that word. Romans 12, Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews says that because God is a loving Father, He'll discipline us. The word discipline doesn't mean punish. It means to train. It means to train. There's a difference between teaching and training. If you've ever been through, this is teaching. I'm not making you do anything. I'm just giving you instructions. I'm giving you understanding. I'm telling you some principles. But if if you ever went into the service and went through basic training, they don't call it basic teaching because you don't go to a class and then go home. You don't show up at 9, get out of class at 5, and go home and do whatever you want to do. When you get out of class, you go out and march. (laughs) And when you're finished marching, you eat when they tell you to eat. You sleep when they tell you to sleep, where you tell you to sleep. They get up when they tell you to get up. They don't ask you whether you like it. They don't ask whether you think it's good for them. They just make you do it. And what they're doing is they're disciplining your behavior. The purpose of of basic training is to shock your flesh. To find out that you're no longer in control, somebody else is in control. That drill sergeant. And to discover that you can do things you don't think you can do. And you cannot do things you think you absolutely have to do. And in fact, we all need to learn that. Because there are things in our life we think are absolutely essential. And you'll find out they may not be as essential as you think they are. I won't meddle right now tonight. And there are things you don't think, oh, I could never do that. And yet God's word says to do it. So one of you is wrong. Either you're wrong or God's wrong well I know where my money is it's on, it's on you being along so the point is training teaching imparts information which is good it gives us understanding training disciplines your actions it makes you do things you don't think you can do and makes you not do things you think you have to do it, just, it puts somebody else in authority over your flesh and over your will now in the army or the navy or the marine corps somebody else does that for you but when it comes to self discipline nobody else can do it for you you have to choose to do it yourself and once you choose to do it the holy spirit will help you but he cannot or will not do it for you so it is a discipline And you have to train yourself to do it. And when I give you these tools later on, that's going to be the tools that you're going to either use or you're not going to use. If you will use them, they will help discipline your mind so that you can take control over your mind. Two other things about it, and then we'll end for tonight, under this discipline. It's work. That's a four-letter word in church it's work it's not just coming up here and pastor lays hands on you and it's done it's not casting some demon out of you because in most cases it's not a demon it's just our flesh going wild it's our mind that's used to being out of, used to being out of control like Mandy our mind well, that's one of the things we'll talk about next week you've got to look at your mind as a, as a little child that's out of control or your dog that's out of control and you can Bring it under control. It's work, and it's constant. It's not something you can do once a week. It's not something you can do, you know, twice a month. It's something you have to be at all the time. But your goal is to get her under control. And you'll make mistakes, you'll slip, you'll fall, but you've got to continue to get up and to do that. So the first two things we're looking at is you've got to decide that the authority is the word in your life, and we're talking about getting control of your mind. I want you to say this with me. I, I am, am, not am not my mind. I can, I can control, my mind. control my mind. I can, I can control, my control my thoughts. My mind, my mind must obey me must obey because me. my mind is not me. And I, I am, not am not my mind. We're going to pick up on this next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your graciousness and your goodness. We thank you tonight, Father, for your word that gives us instruction and understanding. We ask you now, Father, to take the seed of the word that's been sown into our hearts. And Lord, we confess that so often we're lazy and so often we're looking for easy solutions or solutions that make us feel better. But real change, real transformation requires work. Real change, real transformation requires a commitment and a dedication. And Father, we ask You that You would strengthen us inside, in our inner man, with that resolve and that determination that we can do this because You've said so and that we will do this because You need us to do this. And so we ask You, Father, as we meditate on this Word and as we think back over the things that we've heard, that Your Spirit would not only bring to remembrance what we need to remember, but also would give us the confidence that indeed we can do these things. And for that grace, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.